one of the keys to the universe, and here I'll just give you this for free, is curiosity. Um, and I teach all my clients this, that curiosity leads to compassion, which then leads to connection, which then leads to communication, and then leads to collaboration. So most people come to therapy going, we can't communicate, and most therapists start with the communication part. But if you're not curious about somebody, like the minute you make up your mind about somebody, it's game over. I think um, that idea that change occurs when pain overcomes fear is really important. And I also think it's really important not to waste pain. Uh, it's a very, very expensive emotion. So if you don't let it move you toward healing, you're wasting what you're going through. And I think um, since first responders are trained to ignore their pain, What are you confident at? What can what can we do to help you get confident? You know, what risks do you need to take? And parents, please let your children fail. Let them take risks and let them fail. And that's how we learn. I mean, ask yourselves what you've learned the most from your successes or your failures. Struggle and pain and fear and shame and those are all part of the human condition. So let's all just admit that we're human and, you know, you don't even have to think about it as seeking help, just seek support. Everybody's here to support you. Um, one thing first responders are great at is being a team. So reach out to your team, understand that you've got a tribe and that we're all, we're all here for you. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back ATO family. Before I introduce this amazing next guest, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Frisco Sergeant Colby Hill and Marshall PD Lieutenant Lynn Ames. I always appreciate when the listeners reach out to give us feedback. Today's guest comes highly recommended from my boss. She is a true Texan. After going to SMU on a music scholarship, she plays a mean fiddle. She gravitated to the field of counseling helping and serving others. She specializes in last-ditch marriage counseling. She's been a counselor for over 20 years, and she is an approved LPC and LMFT supervisor. She has an arsenal of techniques on her, her utility belt. Yoga, mindfulness training, meditations, and addiction therapy. And yeah, screw it, this lady is a Swiss Army knife in the field of mental health. All of these therapies have one goal, Saving lives, providing people with their own tools to be better, cope better, and save themselves from 
shit situations. It is our great honor to welcome on Lifeology founder, the great Melanie Wells. Melanie Wells, thank you for joining us on the ATL stage. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. I want to introduce a special guest co-host, two of them actually. We got my boss, Lieutenant Lisette Rivera. This is the second, time, third time she's been on. She was on with, uh, who was it? Barbara Crump. Oh yeah, Barbara Crump, and you did the Owl episode. I did. So, and unfortunately, I was scraping the bottom of the barrel and trying to find guest co-host <laughs> to fill the fourth mic. So I'd like to welcome on Dallas PD robbery detective, Megan, what, your le- what's your last name? Mulva Hill. Mulva Hill. Mulva Hill, I'm sorry. <laughs> Megan, thanks for being here. Thanks for digging real deep, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> well, Megan and I go way back. And I she, see that. And she, and she listens to these, or maybe she won't after this, but she, she did listen. So I've had on different doctors and counselors, uh, and they've pretty much been trauma we trauma based right. and we've we've delved into that and we've actually even had on a counselor that her husband's a, a, a firefighter and that was a that was a unique dynamic of hearing their stories and them talk but you know you, you know better than I do I've gone through it but the divorce rate in first responders and military is extremely high and I last I look in Dallas PD I believe it's over 70 percent or if not, it's closing on 80 and it's a problem in our profession. And I really, that, that is your expertise. All right. I'm going to start off uh, just kind of telling your story. Uh, Where did you grow up? So I'm from Amarillo, Texas, which is according to the U S weather service, the windiest city in the United States, not Chicago, Amarillo. So, um, and I was raised by musicians in a creative environment. So for me, Growing up in a small town in the Texas Panhandle was a really artsy, juicy experience with all sorts of interesting people. I didn't know anybody who carried a briefcase to work till I was like 15. So um, for me, it was a really um, free environment where I had lots of opportunity to create and think for myself. And I didn't have parents who expected you to have sort of a backup career. They just wanted us to turn out to be interesting people. And they were interesting people. So it was, it was you know, a great place to grow up. So what, did, what kind of uh, music did you gravitate to? Well, so we were all classical musicians, my whole family. My, my father and mother were both orchestra conductors, and uh, my dad was a drummer, a percussionist, and also a jazz drummer, and my mother played flute, and uh, my brother also was an orchestra conductor. We don't have any control problems in our family. And uh, my brother's also a drummer, and then I was a violinist, um, classically trained, and went to SMU on a music scholarship, and then shoved my fiddle under the bed for about 10 years and started playing in bands, which is way more fun. Nobody what, tells you that. Yeah. What did you what did you play in the band? You know, I just started sitting in um, with a church band at first, and I didn't, you know, it requires improvisation. I don't know if you know that, but you have to be able to make your part up as you go, which is much harder than, you know, playing the notes on the page. So I would just kind of stand way back from the microphone and play whole notes and hope nobody would, could hear me <laughs> until I finally figured it out. But it's one of those things, probably not unlike what we all do for a living, that you have to w- be willing to be bad out loud in order to learn how to do it, right? I do that all the time. <laughs> Every time I record on this, I, yeah, I just make it up as I go. And uh, yeah, it's really, how many instruments can you play? Well, I play the fiddle still. I play piano badly and I played keyboard percussion in high school and also saxophone. So 
but my mother wouldn't let me bring the saxophone into the house because she said it sounded like a dying duck. And yeah, she's, it is a little she's bit loud. Right. Yeah, no, it's cool though. It's a cool look though when you're playing. It's the a sax. cool. Well, not when you're wearing a band uniform with a feather on your head. Yeah, you take take that off. You <laughs> yeah. just, it, um, it's not cool. No, wait. Look, I love I love this sound. The sax, of the sax. Yeah. Yes, I do. Well, yeah. see, so our sound guy, he's in Dallas SWAT. He has a master's oh. in music. Really? And he actually put, can play like seven instruments. And yes, he is. Uh, he's in a. He's a. He's like a renaissance man. He's like, uh, I can't, he comes on occasionally as a guest co-host and he does the majority of the sound editing, mm-hmm. but he won't come on and tell his own story, but he is, uh, he, he's got a scholarship at, I think it's Colorado state in his name. Mm. I mean, he's, wow. yeah, he's at, but he, he's an impressive dude, especially in the music, uh, music world, which I know nothing about. I like listen to it, but you know. Yeah. I can't play a fiddle. Yeah, it's its own. I, I Honestly, I think of it as a different language. Like I can speak a separate language because you can read a different language because most people can't read music. Even Paul McCartney can't even read, me, read music. I don't know if you knew that. No, really? Yeah. So, um, but anyway, you know, music finds, a, uses a different part of your brain than anything else. And so even Alzheimer's patients respond to music and can sing a song even though, even when they can't speak. So there's something about music that hits a different part of your brain and changes the way you think about things that uh, allows for both linear thought and creative thought at the same time. So I had on a guest, uh, he's a, it was our quote-unquote rookie episode, but he was an older rookie, isn't it? Rodney Harrison. Shout out Rodney, he listens. He actually has a background in music as well, and he worked at a facility for addiction that he, he, he wrote a music program for cognitive and behavioral uh, mm-hmm. therapy, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy. And it was a music program. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, music therapy is its own field. I don't know if you knew that, but yeah. I'm actually on the board of a group called Kid Links. And what this group does is bring music therapy and therapeutic music entertainment to kids who otherwise wouldn't have access because it is such a therapeutic um, tool to use, especially for kids who are in trauma, like they would be if they're in the hospital or you know struggling through something really difficult at school. I love it. Yeah. So you, you said you went to SMU. I went to SMU okay, on a music scholarship, that. and I, I was a devil major, music and Renaissance literature. Now that is some really useful stuff that you can take out in the world to make a living with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of coffee shops that you can, you know, exactly. you can sit there and... You can make good conversation at yeah. parties about Shakespeare, but yep. that's, that's pretty much it. So after that, um, I... Uh, you know, stayed out of school for about a minute and a half. And then I went and got a a theology degree at Dallas Theological Seminary, which um, I didn't realize quite what I was getting myself into. It was a very conservative environment and I was raised by hippies. So it was a little bit of a shock to me. (laughs) Can you talk, explain what the theological studies are and, and how that went? Well, so this is Dallas Theological Seminary is a really, it is a conservative school theologically and I would say socially as well. But, um, it is, really, really the place to go if you want to learn the Bible and if you want to learn theology. You literally um, outline the, every single book of the Bible. And um, in my case, and in the case of several people, who, a lot of people who went there that were in my program, you do a lot of it in the original languages. So you, there's Greek and Hebrew that has to be taken. And, you know, it makes a difference how you interpret a passage. So there's a um, a passage, and I should know because I went to seminary if it's in Colossians or James, but I don't, where it says, uh, back to back, let every person carry their own burden and then share one another's burdens. And if you know the Greek, there's two different words for burden. One is like backpack and the other one is like mattress. So if you've ever tried to move a mattress by yourself, you know that generally that's a bad idea. So that's the shared burden. 
Uh, but we all have backpack responsibilities that are ours. So that's kind of one of the things that I think affects how we manage relationships. Are we the person that's trying to carry the mattress around all by ourselves? And so we're isolated and not um, sharing the burden with anybody. Or are we handing our backpack to somebody else? This is your problem to solve, which is, you know, what happens in marriage is a lot, both of those things. Yeah, we're going to get into that. I love that. That's a, that's a great analogy. You're at the Dallas Theological Seminary, and you got hooked on counseling. How did that happen? Well, it was one of the final courses that I took was pastoral counseling. And, it, you know, most of the course was, I thought, not terribly interesting. Um, but the last three or four sessions were taught by a psychologist. And I remember thinking, I can't believe this guy gets paid to do this all day. What a great gig. It's like putting on an old shoe. Like he gets to sit and listen to people talk and he hears their stories and he gets to help them out. You know, to me, it just sounded great. And I remember as a musician, you know, practicing in the basement of the SMU, you know, the practice rooms are in the basement of the music building and thinking I'm in here by myself for hours playing a song that other people have been playing for 200 years. And I don't see how this is going to affect the universe in any way. And I've always had a feeling that I wanted to do something more important than that would have been for me. Um, and I'm not saying musicians don't make a dent in the world they do. Um, and I know that because of my own family, right? But for me, I felt like I wanted to do something that involved humans um, and interacting with humans in a way that would help their move the needle on their lives. And so I didn't know what that would be um, is one of the reasons I went to seminary. But when I took that counseling class, I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, this is what I want to be, and this is how I think I can make a dent in the universe and help people's lives, uh, you know, two degrees plus time, and you're in Manhattan yeah. instead of Cuba. Yeah, it's, it's spider webs <laughs> out. The, you know, if, if you could help one person, that could help an entire family, and it trickles down to everybody that's touched by that family, right? Yes, yes. We did a calculation one year um, for my, I do a speech for my, my team so that they can understand their impact on the world. And every single person that we that we deal with interacts with on average 271 people a year in a meaningful way. And so you think about not, you're not just helping your client and their spouse or their family, but uh, you're interact, you're helping all the other people that are around that they're interacting with. And the other thing I think about a lot is when I'm sitting with a couple, especially if they have kids, I think about what do I not want their kids to tell their therapist in 10 years about how this went? I don't want them to say, nobody confronted my dad about his drinking or nobody stood up to my mom. You know, I want them to be able to say my parents went to therapy and it changed our lives. Right? No, that's, that's amazing. And that, and that is the, it's the ultimate act of service is, is helping others. And, and I, and for me, that's more rewarding. That's one of the most rewarding things. And that's why, that's why I wanted to get involved with this, our new wellness unit. And we're going to kind of get into that later on, but I want, I want to get your opinions of what we're doing and, 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 and your thoughts on it. Yeah. I'm so excited you have it. Yeah, I am too. I, <laughs> I actually have a job. <laughs> so the counseling, you said it, it, it spoke to you and you felt that could be your purpose and your why moving forward in life as opposed to other fields. And uh, other than just why did you think that you would have a knack for it? Have you had a knack for music, but why, what about the counseling aspect of actually speaking to people and, and, and really being a, being a good messenger is a huge part of, of being a counselor. Mm -hmm. What about it made it, made you believe you could do it and excel at it? 
Well, like most therapists that I know, I was that person that people would confide in anyway. So there's one part of you where you might as well just do this for a living because you, you're that person anyway. And I had also developed a knack at that early on of um, listening without, without carrying the backpack, without taking the burden on myself as though it was my problem to solve. And that's a really hard line to, to create as a therapist. So I had sort of a natural ability to do that. Uh, and so for me, I really was interested in uh, what could I do with human beings that would, um, you know, change their lives forever. And I don't mean um, in, a, in a dramatic way, um, which some people do, but I mean in a, in a small but significant way that can change the course of the future, right? So that, was, that felt really important to me. And it's interesting because music, and I'm also, a, I write fiction, Music and fiction and a therapy session are all, all use the same tools. So there's a beginning and a middle and an end, and there's an arc to the story, and there are characters involved, and some have louder voices than others. And um, the dialogue is important. For example, in a book, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if a character is just termed the mother-in-law or, you know, the man on the street, that character is not going to have the same importance as one with a name. And so when I'm in a session and somebody references my husband, my husband, my husband, and I never hear his name, that tells me that the role is really, really more important to this person than maybe the actual connection with the person. What you just described to me is, is life. Yeah. It's, it's, it goes beyond, it's, you said fiction and, and, and mm-hmm. music, but that's actually life. There is a beginning and there's an end. There's yeah. an end for all of us. And you contact and connect with different types of people at different levels some just in passing right you know and it's like some people get pulled over by an officer that they could have a bad experience and that could change their perspective of a police officers after that forever yeah and mm-hmm. so and it, i'm sure it can change the police officer's perspective as well oh yeah right yeah, which is one thing that everybody's concerned about these days yeah and you know one of the keys to the universe and here i'll just give you this for free is curiosity um and i teach all my clients this that curiosity leads to compassion which then leads to connection which then leads to communication and then leads to collaboration so most people come to therapy going we can't communicate and most therapists start with the communication part but if you're not curious about somebody like the minute you make up your mind about somebody it's game over right if you can think i wonder why this person's reacting the way they are, what kind of day do they have, you know, what, what's happening there that they're overreacting or that they're, they're treating me this way. That can change the nature of the interaction and it can change the outcome. Good. Well, I'm really glad that you're not going to bill me for that. I, I, <laughs> I, I like how you said that because it, there could be people that had, I just had on, I just released an episode with a documentarian that he had a really bad experience with law enforcement mm. when he was 16. Mm. He he didn't like police mm-hmm. and and but once he started working around homicide you know this is several years later mm-hmm. uh 25 years later he started working around them he started seeing the human side of them and seeing the work that's put in and hey there's assholes in every sure. walk of life in yeah. every profession it, you know mm-hmm. you know that but it's something can interaction can just jade you and 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 make you feel a certain way for the rest of your life in some cases yeah and i would i would expand on that. I agree with you. And I think also not interacting with somebody at all, you can make up your mind about them. So there's a lot of um, controversy in the news right now about gender. Yeah. And most people don't know a person who's transitioning. But if you know anybody 
personally who's transitioning from one gender to the other, this is not a, a casual or easy process. It's excruciating. And often family ties are cut. I mean, it's a complete transformation as a human, obviously. Um, but it's a really, really personally traumatic process. And it's not something that take, people take on flippantly, but that's how the conversation is. But then when you meet somebody who's actually dealing with this, you, it, it changes your understanding of what, what the issue really is. So it's not even just about gender science. It's about humans and the human struggle, you know? Yeah, and their struggle with, with, with that whole that whole process. Yes. It, it, and, it's, and it's just beyond what they're physically going through, the mental aspect and, and the social aspect of, of the people around them who's in their life or the people that have left their lives because of it. Right. And it's, you know, it's very, very difficult for the families to, to suddenly see, you know, their son as a daughter, for example. It's really hard to, if you meet somebody who's already transitioned and you meet them in their current gender, then, you know, most people are fine with it. But it's really hard because the family and everybody else has to make a transition too. So in something like that, you know, really, truly having curiosity and just bothering to use the phrase, help me understand, can just go so far. At least have an open mind. Yeah. You know, and just be receptive you may you know there may be things that i can't like police behavior and police practices and policies you know the knock and announce versus surround and call out and no knock warrants that mm-hmm. we've, we've already kind of delved into to educate there's some people that just they're not going to hear it either way exactly and, but yeah. that, and that's okay right but uh at least but you know what you may talk to somebody you may talk to 10 people two or three may just go huh i never thought of that Right. That logic or that perspective. And that tells me that that's somebody who's willing to use their curiosity, right, and not, not just make up their mind, and that's it. Yeah, as it be so tribal. I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. in, this, in the way the, the politics are now, everybody's so tribal, and they're either on one side or they're on this right. side, and, they're, and, they're just, and they're, you know, they want to do some hand-wringing, and they're, they want to get angry, and there's no open-mindedness to, right. a, to a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the conversations. We deal with that a lot in this profession. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And, you know... Um, polarizing conversations well that's why i have a job because obviously i do last ditch couples counseling (laughs) so Mm -hmm. by the time people get to me they've you know mowed down three or four other therapists usually and you know things are really bad and um so if i don't if i can't show up with something different and really the key to me is that curiosity then i'm not doing my job but if i can help people who've been married for 20 years to see each other in a new light just by simply using their curiosity um, that changes the, that changes the conversation completely. Then you might end up with a conversation that's characterized by curiosity and compassion, and we might actually get somewhere instead of having, having the same old fight that we've always had and running around the same old tree. Yeah, it's, it's like getting in the OODA loop of, of thought process. Yeah. With um, You just mentioned uh, last-ditch mm-hmm. marriage. What, what is the definition of that to you? What is, can you explain that? Well, I made up that term. <laughs> no, I, and I want you to define it. Yeah. <laughs> and I did it because, uh, well, after I, I got divorced 20 years ago, actually 23 almost, um, and it really changed the way I live my life and the way I work and the way I think about things. Um, but I changed, I was already a marriage counselor or a couples counselor at that point. But when I thought about it, you know, what really interests me is like when things are really, really hopeless, you know, what did I need? Um, and what do people need when they really feel no hope and when all of the usual, um, you know, communication tricks and all that is not working. And I think there's, you know, probably like in any profession, there's some people are really good at it and some people are really bad at it. And most people, by the time they get to me, have had some pretty bad therapy. So for me, um, 
that word last ditch is that's when you feel out of hope. Um, you've, and I, I get, use this analogy a lot. It's people are really, really tired by the time they get to me. They're really, really worn out. And I always tell them, you know, I think it's because you've been trying to swim in the sand. So, and you're scratched up and you're sunburned and, you know, nothing, and you're tired and all your muscles are sore, but don't confuse that fatigue with lack of hope because in order to actually swim, you have to get in the water and learn how to swim. It's never what you're, what you've been doing is never going to work ever. Right. When you, when you have people that come, uh, some of the people that come to you for this last ditch effort, Mm -hmm. uh, try, Mm -hmm. do you have... One, if not both of the people kind of like half-assed going through the motions because they've already tried and it's up to you to go, all right, this is different. This is a new approach and you're going to have to believe in it to get this to work. There are a lot of people because they do have therapy fatigue and and just, I have tried all of this. Right. And here I am one last time Mm -hmm. with Melanie and, you know, do you you see some people you have to really work harder to get buy-in? Rarely. Really? I mean, very often there's one person who's not super committed or who's, um, you know, the other person has dragged them to therapy. Uh. But I, I practice something uh, pretty uh, religiously called multipartiality. And that means I'm partial to everybody in the room, which means you get confronted and you get confronted. And you get supported and you get supported. So I might say, you know, hey, I really hear that you're hurting and yet you don't get to talk to anybody that way. Has anybody ever told you that it's not okay to yell? And so since I'm willing to confront those things head on right from day one, usually people are pretty bought in by the time they leave my office the first time. Because they probably haven't received that no. prior. And very often the answer to the question that I ask, you know, has anybody ever told you you can't do that? The answer is no. And, you know, so that's useful information for me to have. And it also, at that point, I'm modeling to the other spouse, well, guess what? This is possible. This person can be stood up to because I just did it. Right? Yeah. And they could actually see that. They were receptive to it. Right, right. They can be receptive. So generally, I find if you if you function with self-respect, which is how you allow yourself to be treated in the world, and you function with respect, people respond to that well. If you don't function with self-respect, which I did not do in my first marriage, then I can, tra- I can train anybody to treat me badly, right? And so if I'm, if I'm not walking around expecting to be treated well, then I won't be treated well. And if I walk around treating people badly, then that's probably what I'm going to get from them. Can you talk about your your marriage? Are you comfortable with talking sure. about that, that, that failed? Sure. So um, I'm not sure I would say that it failed. Okay, that your prior marriage. No, well, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So I changed my definition of failure okay. after uh, I got divorced. So I think um, staying in a relationship that requires you to be unhealthy is a failure. True. So I think we tend to define successful marriage by longevity, but anybody can stay married. Being married successfully is an entirely different process. It's the quality of it's the quality of what you're looking at. Yeah. Do you have a really do you have a partnership and a relationship that's going to work, or is this just geography and uh, time that we're spending together? Um, and what happened to me when I got divorced and anybody who's been divorced knows this is you suddenly lose the luxury of private failure and now you're out, you're out of the closet as a failure. Right. And so, uh, I found that to be very liberating because I'd spent 15 years privately, you know, failing, uh, being in an unhealthy relationship, being unhealthy myself and being in a relationship that required me to remain unhealthy if it was going to, you know, be sustained. That's the failure. 
the success for me was having uh, enough insight to finally go, this isn't actually sustainable. And I only left because I couldn't take it anymore. I didn't, left bec- I didn't leave because I wouldn't take it anymore. And that's probably my one regret. I think if I had drawn a line much earlier, things might have turned out differently. But for me, you know, I allowed myself, and, and like any um, relationship, there were ups and downs and it wasn't all terrible. But I allowed myself to be mistreated for many, many years. And since I allowed that to happen, you know, it lasted a really long time. You can get used to anything. You can get it, used to anything. Yeah. What, what about that was kind of not to say the final straw, but got you to thinking I need a change for myself. Well, um, it, it was interesting because I was confused all the time I was in that relationship and confusion is always an indication that you might be in an abusive relationship. So if you're confused all the time, you're either being gaslighted or you're dealing with somebody who's not treating you honestly or, you're dealing with somebody who changes the rules all the time or, or whatever. There's somebody who's abusing your trust or who's abusing something in the relationship. So I stayed confused all the time. And now I don't remember what you asked me. <laughs> no, no. I, what was the, what oh, actually yeah. made you to what kind of say, okay, this straw? is, Thank yeah. you. Um, well, the confusion all the time was a thing. And um, I, I tended to doubt myself constantly. So, and I, I worried about being in trouble, which I was all the time. And he wasn't a violent person until the end. He was a silent rager. And, um, anybody who's been that through that very pleasant experience, you know, of being in a, maybe on a car ride for eight or 10 hours with somebody who's not speaking to you, it's, you know, it's excruciating, but it's not, it's confusing because if I, and I hear this from women all the time, if only he'd hit me, I would know what to do. Because that we is what we how we define abuse. We don't think about emotional abuse or silent rage or as abuse or financial abuse or sexual abuse happening within a relationship. We don't really consider those be, to be sort of last straw moments. Um, and I wish that we did because it's like a frog in the water. You know, you slowly boil to death because you're willing to you're willing to tolerate everything that's being dished out. So for me, there was a moment where he escalated and he began to get. Um, more verbally abusive and he began to get violent and I didn't file until the day after he showed up with a Beretta nine millimeter. It took that to get my attention. And, um, even then I was just so terrified of, of what everybody else would think. And I was so terrified of, you know, what he would do that it was, you know, I mean, I was terrified every day for months and months and months, just trying to figure out what to do. So I think a lot of people stay because they're afraid of what might happen if they leave. And I didn't have children, so I didn't have that pressure. But um, for me, there was a moment just when I couldn't take it anymore. And like I said, it wasn't the moment that I wouldn't. It's just that he escalated enough that I just couldn't do it anymore. His escalation, and I've, and I've actually seen, and I have a lot of friends that, that have experienced female friends that they saw an escalation once they started trying to push back or they basically were done themselves and then what behavior had been working all these years and in these other times of you know somebody even tries to have a hint of of strength and they back them down with whatever behavior but that stopped working mm-hmm. do you think you see that a lot that that people escalate uh you know typical narcissistic behavior people escalate because this ain't working i gotta i gotta jump up my game to match their level of, of uh, pushback. Yeah, that happens a lot. And sometimes that happens because of the the need for a blame shift. 
So very often the, the, the violent person or the abusive person will escalate because they don't want, they want out and they don't want to be responsible for being the person who got out. So in order to blame shift, they'll turn up the heat enough so that the, the other person can't take it and they finally leave. I see that a lot. Damn. Damn. There, 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 there is just a lot of, there's so many like this pl- different playbooks. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking, where's some of the to- toxic marriage traits that you've seen that like, you know, in general, I know everybody's different, but in general, what have you seen? Yeah. And I, I'm glad you use that word toxic um, because it, that's a useful concept when you're defining relationships. It's hard to, it's hard to think about um, how to evaluate relationships quite often. But if you really think is this toxic for me, like, could I keep drinking this all day if I had to, (laughs) Um, or am I poisoning myself with this? That's, that can be pretty useful. But I think the things I see in, in, in toxic relationships are gaslighting, um, one-sidedness, a a power uh, differential that is, um, you know, not working for either person really. Um, ideally what you have in a, in a, in a healthy family is mutual commitment between the spouses, um, and a appropriate power structure between the spouses and a generational split. So it's us against them, us against the kids. Right. And I don't mean that in a negative way. So you see alignment between one parent and both kids. You see high conflict between the parents you see, um, you know, all violations of that sort of structural rule. And then there are some sort of things in the industry which are known to be toxic. So contempt is one. Um, resentment is one, long-term resentment. There's a, there's a saying that resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. So <laughs> uh, contempt and resentment, stonewalling, you know, long periods of silence, name-calling, um, particularly a uh, favorite of mine. And one thing that I see constantly that's just a complete no-win situation is trying to reconstruct the past in order to win an argument. You said this. No, I didn't say that. I said it this way. And there's really no, unless you got a recording, there's, there's no way to do that. And so what I find is people have evidence wars, and they fight about the same things over and over and think, you know, the fantasy of I just escalate this enough, the other person will go, oh, you're right. I didn't see it that way. And that's just not how it happens. It's like a mind game, just to kind of yeah. like a Jedi mind trick, just to kind of yeah. Because you could, you, well, maybe I did say it that way, and exactly. you start questioning yourself. Yeah, exactly. And so if you're with, um, if you're with somebody who's a rager, and I have a rager in my family right now, um, who I'm really having trouble dealing with. You know, he's emotionally he's an emotionally unregulated person, and so that's like you know who knows when this grenade's going to go off. So if you're dealing with that, it's you, you have a couple of choices. You can either try to releg- regulate the situation or you can confront that person and, you know, make sure that they deal with themselves because they're not going to do this on your time or you can end the relationship. Can you describe, I mean, just for the listeners, like uh, a rager, what, what is a, a, an example, like the type of behavior? Yeah, so rage is an interesting word. It's a, I, I have a um, blackboard in my office that has seven emotions on it. Uh, fear, pain, ga- guilt, shame, loneliness, anger, and joy. Um, and anger usually is a secondary emotion. It's usually com- covering up something stinkier like shame or guilt. That's, you know, and it comes out as anger because it's very accessible to a lot of people. Rage is when you're feeling a lot of those things at once. So when somebody's displaying rage, they're usually feeling shame and guilt and fear, some combination of those things. And, and, ra- and anger is a more accessible emotion. So it comes out as, as rage. So it's like, um, 
it's like a pressure cooker. And there's a little valve that you can release where the whole top can blow off, right? So when the top blows off and the pressure's been that much, that's when you see rage. But rage comes in a lot of different packages. It can come in verbal package. It can come in physical it can, I've seen people um, cut off the, the spouse's credit cards and empty the bank accounts overnight because they got, they were enraged about something. Um, obviously, somebody who has a temper and is verbally abusive um, and physical abuse is obviously uh, somebody who's rageful and, and completely um, unregulated and flooded. So if you think about emotional flooding, there's a moment and you can, if you know anybody who's a rager, you can just tell. There's a moment when there's just a tipping point and they're, they're, they can't or they won't pull themselves back. Right. They're just going to indulge that that impulse to rage instead of taking a breath and going, wow, I can feel my body. You know, my body's telling me that I'm about to get out of control. My heart rate's going up. My face is starting to feel hot. I need to get myself under control. That's the difference between somebody who's healthy and a rager. How do you what message do you give to people that are that are ragers to cope with that? Well, it's interesting because this is where the curiosity and compassion comes in because, you know, I was talking about my family member. Um, To me, it's really sad because this is somebody who's, he's just a raw nerve and every single thing that goes wrong will elicit rage. That is no way to live, right? And so if I get a chance to talk to somebody who's a rager, which I do in my office quite often, um, I'll find out what the rage is about. Is it fear? Is it guilt? Very often it's shame. And if I can get to the bottom of it and they can understand this is actually what I'm feeling and I'm acting it out and it's hurting me and everybody else. It's really, it's like I said, it's no way to live. It's exhausting to be a rager. And if you relieve somebody of that being their only coping skill, they usually find that uh, to be um, really just quite a relief. You're kind of taking that mattress away from them. Yeah, taking the mattress away. (laughs) And here's your backpack. Yeah, here's the backpack. And here's what to put in it. <laughs> so how, you, you, you got out of the marriage, and then how did that look at for the, the aftermath for you when you got out of the marriage, and then you started, you really kind of took a new approach of your practice, and you mm-hmm. went a different direction. How did that look for you? Well, I have a deep belief that you should never waste pain because it's far too expensive. And so... If I was going to go through something that horrible, I was going to let it change me. So, and I, you know, since I was with a very punitive person and had left a very punitive person, I left everything. So I, my payout, my uh, divorce settlement after 15 years of marriage was $12,000 paid out over a year. So it was $1,000 a month. (laughs) And I didn't get, I never even saw my dogs again. Like it was grim. So, and I just started my business and I had about $7 in the bank. I didn't have my own credit rating. My dad had to co-sign on an apartment for me so that I could have a place to live. So I really left everything and started completely over. And I did that sort of with my personality and with my, um, not my personality, but with my relationship habits as well. Like this is going to be a fresh start. I'm starting with nothing. So let's rebuild this entire thing and let's do it better now. So for me, and I I did an exercise then, I came up with this exercise that I do with all my clients now, where I, I, it would have been so easy just to blame him, you know, he was mean. Um, But I drew a line down the middle of the page, and I put his name on the left side and mine on the right side. And under his name, I wrote down all the things, you know, he's abusive, he's punitive, he's cruel, he's a rager, he's, you know, all those. But then on my side, I had to write what my corresponding trait was. 
So if he was abusive, I was abusable. And if he was punitive, I was willing to be treated like a child. So I had this horrible list of things about myself. Um, and I, so I tore the list up at the middle and I threw his page away. And I never thought about him again. I don't resent him or anything. I just thought, how did this happen? How did I let this happen? How did I become this person? And so um, even now when people ask me what happened, I'll say, well, he was mean and I was weak. Because both of those ha things had to be true for that pattern to go on as long as it did. So I looked at my list and that was, I made it my mission in life not to be that person. And when I tell the story, people can't believe that I was ever that person because I'm, you know, successful and confident and all the things that I am now. But that all came at a very high price for me. How often, once you have somebody that's been through one divorce, how often do you see them carrying those exact same traits and going into second divorce? Because what you just said right there, yeah, so many people pass that blame and then don't do that inner working. What, yeah. What's your experience there? I think that's your, I'm so glad you brought that up. Is it Megan? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, uh, because I think that's pretty much 100% of the time. Unless somebody bothers or sees the right therapist or whatever, it bothers to have that insight about themselves. What is it about me that made this possible is the key question. So people always think, what if I make the same mistake again? You know, do I need to fix my picker? Is that the problem? Do I pick the wrong guys? And I'm thinking, no, you're the wrong person. Like what you're doing, I can train anybody to treat me that way if I act like that. And so for us to have insight, I think uh, very often, and I'll just generalize, but very often women feel powerless in relationships. And my contention is it's because you give your power away. And if you break the habit of giving your power away and manage yourself differently, then you're no longer qualified to be in that abusive relationship. And I'll, I'll complete the example. So fast forward five years, and I'm with the person I'm married to now, who's also a, a quiet person, similar uh, personality, but not uh, an abusive or hurtful person. Um, I like people with order, like, you know, I need people that think in straight lines. I'm not that girl. So um, fast forward five years, and I'm at um, my now husband's house, but we weren't married at the time, and I have some dishes in the sink, and he's Mr. Hospital Corners. Like, you can, see, I always say, use this example, but you could do surgery on the floor of the garage. Like, he's that guy that's had the garage refinished, and it's polished, and if there's a drop of water, he goes out there, and he, like, cleans it up this is my kind of person <laughs> well it works out great for me because he's very like he really gets a kick out of you know taking the stuff out of the refrigerator when the ex expiration date is passed you know that's a fun night for him which is great that means I don't have to do it but anyway I'm in his house and I have to be somewhere on a Saturday and I've got dishes in the sink and um, I had a moment where I was like I had that old feeling that I was going to be in trouble and it was just a gut punch so I sat there and I couldn't decide what to do I was either going to leave him and be in trouble or I was going to do him and be late. So what do you think I did, Megan? I'm sure your initial instinct is to fall on those old habits. Yeah, do the dishes. Well, even worse, I called him to warn him that there would be dishes in the sink, which is the same class of behavior. It's just I'm just trying to stay out of trouble. So later in that day when he got home, I sat him down, and he knew my story, and he would even know my ex. And I said, let me just tell you what happened. And so I told him the story, and I said, this is why I did it, and that's a relapse for me, and I'm not going to do that again. And he said, if you leave dishes in the sink and I get mad, that means I'm an asshole. And so that told me two things. One, I'm still at risk for being that person who's worried about getting in trouble, but also I've outgrown that relationship, and I'm not with that guy anymore. Right? Yeah, that's a great <laughs> advancement there. Yeah, <laughs> progress. So you, you see a lot of uh, first responders uh, what are some of the uh, the issues you see that are 
kind of prevalent in this profession, and I know it, it varies, but what have you seen uh, in general for first responders and military types, the class type A personalities, and and can you kind of go into that? Yeah, I, I think it has something to do with the type A personalities. I think it has maybe more to do with the fact that a part of your job description is that you have to be tough and impervious to emotion. So in order to do what you do for a living as a first responder, you have to be in a really, really highly emotional situation and traumatic situation and not let it affect you, at least in real time. And so are we going to just magically open up and become emotionally vulnerable when we walk in the door at home? Very unlikely. And so generally the same habits we carry around, emotional habits that we carry around in the world are the ones that we take home to our relationships. So that's one thing is that sort of walled off um, sense of self. Like if I, if I show vulnerability, I'm showing weakness. That's something I see with first responders a lot. And because of that, um, unwillingness or discomfort in showing or even feeling vulnerability, there's a lot of compensation for, for difficult emotions. So there might be drinking, there might be, you know, uh, sex outside of the marriage, there might be, you know, all kinds of unhealthy hoping, coping skills to medicate the emotion instead of dealing directly with the emotion, which is to say, I'm, you know, I'm feeling a lot of shame about this. Can we talk about it? That's not something, I don't know how many, you know, I'm sure you guys know hundreds of cops. I don't know how many cops you know that would be happy to say, oh, I'm feeling a lot of shame about this. Can we talk about it? Not many. <laughs> no, not many. <laughs> not many. So what, what kind of dynamics when it comes to first responder married to another first responder that you've seen well yeah so double that yeah yeah um so you've got the same thing happening on both sides and then you have two really well-meaning people who are trying to create a home and a family without the actual starter kit emotional starter kit to do that and so there's lots of effort but again people are sort of swimming in the sand when actually the the skills that are required to to have a successful relationship are you know, the willingness to be vulnerable and the willingness to handle, you know, sticky, stinky emotions um, without decompensating and the ability to have a conflict that has a beginning and a middle and an end with no collateral damage and the ability to have those five C's that I talked about, you know, curiosity, compassion, connection, communication, collaboration, that's all required to have a successful relationship. And nobody teaches you that stuff. And in fact, in the first responder world, you're taught not to do any of those things. Turn it off. Turn it off. Melanie, so when you have two first responders that are a couple, whether they're dating or they're uh, they're actually in a, in a marriage, when like like Lieutenant just talked about, she was in child abuse. They see the absolute some of the worst side of humanity and some of the worst you know offenses to true helpless people and mm-hmm. and in, in, uh, in kids. If you're with a first responder spouse or a partner. Have you seen that it's easier for them to go home and communicate better because the other side can understand what they've seen and what they've gone through? Or do you see that as helpful or harmful in some ways? I think it cuts both ways. Okay. Uh, no question, you're dealing, you're you're talking to somebody who can understand what you've been through in a way that that other people can't. Um, there aren't that many jobs where you have to, where you see people on the worst day of their life every time with pretty much everybody you interact with. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and and that's what first responders deal with and people in the military see trauma that the rest of us never see. So there's something, a sort of a unique tribe and there's sort of a tribal, mutual tribal understanding. 
And on the but on the other hand, you know, how does each person discharge their stress at the end of the day? And you might have one person who needs to shake it off alone and another person who needs to talk. And one of them may just be, I, I can't listen to anybody else or think about anything else today. Um, I'm going to go, you know, drink until I fall asleep, and which may leave the other person feeling abandoned and, and unheard. So if you think about, um, you know, your water bottle there, which is almost full, and every day you go to work and it just fills up and fills up and fills up and fills up with stress, there's this much room, you know, like half an inch at the top for anything else to be put in there and before you're going to overflow. So people can only take so much. And when they get to that sort of um, saturation point of stress and trauma, something's going to break. And so if you don't have a way to empty that bottle and discharge the stress and discharge the trauma on a regular basis, you know, nobody can get through that well. And so to, to be in a high stress job, and that could be, you know, an emergency room surgeon or doctor or whatever, uh, or any first responder or, um, you know, pick somebody. You have to have an ability to manage yourself and to manage your your emotional saturation. And if you don't, then it's going to spill out all over you and all over everybody else. So it's it's a self-management issue. So that's why we – and this is something we, that is now starting to be talked about more, I think, in first responders, um, in the world of first responders, is brain health. Your, your brain is an actual organ, like all the other organs in your body, and it needs to be managed. And neurofitness is a thing. And so to be able to discharge stress and discharge trauma in a way that's healthy, which might involve breathing exercises, it involves meditation, certainly yoga. We have a yoga studio in, in my practice that's um, every class is designed with a particular energetic outcome. This is a down-regulating class. So if, you're, if you need to discharge stress, this is a good class for you. This is an up-regulating class. So if you're experiencing depression, which is very common in first responders, this is a good class for you. There are different protocols. To, so you can use your body to manage your brain, but your frontal lobe, like your ability to think, is not going to be able to help your body discharge stress. Well, because it's all symbiotic. I mean, you're, it's all, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I want to get into like a topic of like uh, narcissistic behavior mm-hmm. and how that which you've seen how that how that's affected in in, in ruined marriages and in partnerships. Yeah, so the, there's a there's a difference between a narcissist, a diagnostic a diagnosed narcissist. There are criteria for that in the DSM, which is how we diagnose in my okay. field. Um, and then there's narciss- narcissistic humans, people who are wildly self-centered and don't seem to have much empathy or insight. So there's a tipping point somewhere, and I could give you a few public examples of people with narcissistic personality disorder, but I'll skip that part. Um, but we, also, we all know people who are wildly self-centered and don't seem to have any empathy or insight. And lack of insight, I think, is really the key to understanding that you're dealing with somebody who's, who's a narcissist. There's no insight. I'm in, my impact on you is of no consequence. And I, in fact, don't even agree don't that I'm impacting you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not shit. impacting yeah. you. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. Right? So the narcissist, um, again, is sort of living a tortured existence and taking it out on everybody else. But the, And the narcissistic tricks are well known. The gaslighting and the raging and the um, you know injection of self-doubt and the blame shifting. All of that happens uh, routinely in relationships with narcissists, which, again, is why the other person stays confused all the time, because the rest of us are thinking, like, trying to make sense of things. What? Why does he do that all the time? 
Um, and just a little side note, a, a clue that you might be in a relationship with a narcissist or somebody who's abusing you in some way mentally is one, if you're, if you're confused all the time, but two, if you're constantly thinking about why do they do that? What can I do differently? There's a saying, an Al-Anon saying, actually, our thinking is our drinking. So if you're the thinker and always trying to figure out what the answer is to get the other person to stop doing what they're doing, you're probably in a relationship that's abusive or with a narcissist. Does that make sense? Yeah, because the other, if you're walking on eggshells because of what you, yeah. your behavior may set, yeah, set it off. Well, n- yeah. And so so if, you're thinking about that, what you can do. You're constantly to, working the puzzle. Right. Why does he do this? I don't care why he does it. He, the, the, the answer is, you know what? I've broken the habit of letting myself be talked to that way. So we can either bring the conversation down or we can quit. It's up to you. So a boundary is really the answer. I don't really care why he's doing it. That's fair. Um, I want to ask you a question, couple questions about social media. And I'll mm. tell you, I'll explain why first. When Joe first... Um, asked about sitting in on this episode and the topics and I mean (laughs) um, there's such a wide variety but when you integrate into my job so I'm a robbery investigator and a very large part of our investigations is social media social media excuse me and like cell phone extractions Mm -hmm. so you really read people's lives Mm And one of the things that was really stunning to me as a young investigator, and it only has seemed to grow with the growth of social media, is the weight and importance we put on what other people think of our relationships with the perception um, to the extent that it evolves in some of these more extreme examples that you're um, talking about. For instance, if we do a social media poll for an investigation, you'll find not only the evidence of robberies, um, but also the, the thread with the girlfriend or the wife. Um, right. And there is so often I see, well, why didn't you post me today? Mm. Or how come you didn't like my post? What are you up to? What's going on? And the, the weight of you showing me or you accepting me and the fights that it starts. Yeah. Um, has this been really interesting to me? I think I'm on that cusp where it's like, I'm not as old as Joe, <laughs> but I'm not as young as many of my suspects. And I, I so I haven't had that, I, I've never experienced that where my fulfillment came from a boyfriend showing my picture and shouting me out on my birthday. Right. Um, so what are you seeing in that um, devolvement <laughs> in relationships? Well, it's interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's, I, I do think there's a certain degree of it that's generational. It's, we're, we're raising a strangely narcissistic generation right now um, in that everything you do is, you know, there's a picture of it. And I don't, I mean, when I was growing up, we had Polaroids, like I'm just totally dating myself. But that was a really big deal that you could just take a picture instantly and see it, right? And you didn't have to go get the film developed. But now the picture like literally is instant. And so I've seen, you know, I, we go to the beach in Florida every year. And every year I see you know, people taking pictures of themselves at the beach instead of actually being at the beach. Like it's more important, the image of being at the beach is more important than actually being at the beach. So start with that. Um, And so that creates just this chronic insecurity. Like, is my life interesting? Do people like me? Why didn't I get any likes? Why is nobody paying any attention to me? This chronic need for external validation instead of an internal sense of self. And so you tack on that insecurity to narcissism and you've got somebody who requires attention and not only can they not tolerate not having it but they're abusive enough that they'll require it 
And so that's when somebody becomes possessive and somebody becomes abusive. And that's when things get really ugly when you don't, when you didn't share my post or you didn't, um, you know, you didn't, uh, like my post or why haven't you posted me today? Or, you know, why, who's that guy that you're with? For example, who was the person that did like your post? Yeah, who was the person that did like your post? And so somebody's stalking your social media because, you know, they're so insecure that they can't, you know, tolerate the idea that you might have, you know, somebody else in their life, in your life that they don't know about. Yeah, I, I listened to a good audio book recently. It's called The New Science of Narcissism. Oh. And it's really good. Uh, Joe Rogan had on the author on, and that's why it turned me on to it. And it basically says that we are really there. Social media has bred a new type of narcissistic behavior where people need constant affirmation Mm -hmm. and and there are people that sit and 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 it's all that's the most important thing to them all day is putting putting out their pictures of themselves they need to put let's say like gym selfies and Mm -hmm. you know or or just pick constant selfies of them you know not even the gym they need people to like and share they need affirmation they need constant affirmation that people like them and respect what they're doing and then they get down and then when you factor in the relationship aspect they're people that stalk their significant others right post and, and they say oh who's who are these people so I, I got a lot of people that like myself i haven't seen in 30 years you know they're yeah. from high school so that's, that's why know, i like facebook, facebook is- friends. yes <laughs> yeah. although i catch myself going who's that old fat guy with that cute girl that's my age and then i realize oh i went to high school with him yeah right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and somebody went the other direction. And yeah, one well, or you yeah. know, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm you know older than I think I am. Um, but you know that that constant need for affirmation. Let's let's take that a step further. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was growing up, probably when you were growing up, I don't know, but I, probably all of us, our parents didn't carry Cheerios with them all the time. Yeah, that did not happen. Um, so you will not see a parent of a young child without Cheerios ever. Or goldfish or something. Or goldfish yeah, or yeah. something. And the idea is if the kid's upset, you give them something and help them calm down. So it's it's kind of a simplistic example, but a basic requirement of being a human being is to be able to emotionally self-regulate. So when that comes from an external source 100% of the time, then you never learn to emotionally self-regulate. So take that inability to emotionally self-regulate, which we don't teach our children now, and then add in the chronic insecurity and the chronic need and the constant need for attention. And you've got a real problem on your hands, right? So it's not just narcissism. It's the inability to emotionally manage myself. So a, a basic skill is to be able to, I mean, when, I, when we acted up in the grocery store, what happened? Yeah, I'd be on the floor. Yeah, you get spanked <laughs> yeah. and sent to the car. To sit by yourself in the car, yeah, which uh, now you probably get, you know, some arrested for child abuse if you did that. But yeah. Um, but we were expected to learn to calm yourself, calm down, right? Calm down. My, my dad would just, you know, say, uh, you know, you can either stop crying here or you can stop crying in your room, but you're going to settle down at some point, And when you do, we can talk. Okay. You know, so that was a thing that was required when we were kids, but it's not something that's required anymore. And then the other thing that's happening is, um, it's just a sort of a chronic, uh, you know, habit of over parenting. So, um, the average age that a kid was alone when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s was eight. Um, they're alone for the first time at eight. Do you know what it is now? Fifteen. Oh, wow. That a kid is, un, you know, uh, supervised for the first time ever in their lives is 15. So, and, you know, you guys see all the worst things. You've seen child abductions and all that. But who are they usually by? Family. Family. Yeah, and, and like a relationship 
relationship split type scenario. Exactly. Yeah. So there rarely are stranger abductions. The world isn't danger more dangerous now than it was in the 70s, but we parent as though it is. And so there's constant attention. There's constant protection. There's constant, you know, uh, let me help you calm down. Here's a Cheerio. And then a constant, um, you know, need for attention on the on the kids' part and on young people's part. So you throw all that together, and you've got a you've got a situation where people don't know how to um, interact with other people or themselves, and that's not going to turn out well. Unless unless it's through text, chatting, yeah. you know, and like an iPad or iPhone. Yeah, you know? yeah, and you know, just the art of conversation is to be able to look somebody in the eye and, and have a conversation. That's that's what we call relationships, right? That, that's why I prefer to do these podcasts face to face. I don't like Zoom, but I, I just that's the way I yeah, like it. Yeah, which I was really grateful for, actually. Yeah, but um, and you know, now now take all of that and you know, put a 34, 35 year old in a marriage. Where again, those things that are required are like mutual vulnerability and all those C's and curiosity and compassion. That all requires actual face to face eye contact. And, you know, marriage is relentless, just goes on and on and on. It can be really claustrophobic. So to be able to, you know, to have, be able to do all of that stuff just suddenly is, I think that's a tall order. I think it, you bring up a good um, side topic with that that I hadn't thought about before, but you see more and more people, including, I see it in my own children, but I'm sure it relates into the marriage that you're observing is people that can only work out arguments via text messages now. Oh my gosh. And what a bad idea. Let me just say it's because you can't read tone in text. Right. Right. And so if I see a text that's more than three lines long uh, between a couple, I'm just thinking, let's, let's just don't, don't do this. You can say all kinds of things in a text that you wouldn't say in person. Right. And then you can't read the tone. Somebody might really just be trying to explain some facts and it may sound aggressive to you or something. And then we've got this big text fight and we've had no you know, actual conversation about it. I find that from reading stuff that um, both from investigations and also, like I said, just in my own parenting, that people tend to be more cruel when they're mm-hmm. typing it out. But you're not feeling less of right. those feelings and trying to explain that to a 12 year old daughter right. that that person wouldn't actually say that to your face. So don't, don't give them all of your feelings. Right. I can only imagine in a volatile marriage, right. How much more painful that is when it's somebody that you're putting all of your trust in. Yeah. And imagine how triggering it is like it. And, and a trigger is just something that happens that, that, that generates, you know, a, a, a spike of emotion. That's, that's, that's how we'll define trigger. So you see something in a text that sets you off and then you fire off another one now we've got it going back and forth and that's really that's really productive that's going to go well <laughs> what i see a lot of is whenever i see people over posting about how great the relationship is mm-hmm. and uh, facebook life you know is is sometimes different from what the actual what's going on behind the scenes you'll see people posting uh these selfies or other these pictures with their significant other about how great daily mm-hmm. everything is so great and amazing and then two months later you see they disappear for a minute and then you'll see people start posting inspirational quotes and then all of a sudden it goes from <laughs> to it's comp from you know married it's complicated, it's complicated to, to single, single. <laughs> and like wow that escalated quickly yeah. Why do you think that? I mean, that is also, do you think people are kind of compensating for they're putting it out there and then maybe even tricking themselves and then it's that good by posting it all the time? I do. I do think that. I One, one of the things I learned uh, through my own, you know, marriage and divorce experience was that you have to lie to yourself a lot to stay in a bad relationship. I mean, you have to lie to yourself a lot. 
And so very often I'll have people just make a list of the lies they're telling themselves. And so I think that social media constant posting everything is great is part of the self-lie. It's part of me trying to convince myself that everything's good. And if you'd asked anybody who knew me in my previous life, they would have said that we had a great marriage. Because, you know, you, you, you paper everything over and you smile. We both went to seminary and we were this, you know, tall, blonde couple that looked like they had everything together. And, of course, you want it to look like that. And you need to, you need to believe that yourself. And then there's this cognitive di- dissonance that you'll allow. Like, I know things are really, really ugly at home. But this is also happening. You know, we did have a nice trip to the beach. You know, so you you try to compensate for the terrible things with the good things. And unfortunately, nobody's horrible all the time. So um, that's one of the things that's confusing about those relationships. You almost have to put on almost like a Stepford wife or Stepford mm-hmm. husband uh, persona just to for the outward you know, the outward appearances that everything's great and, and normal. Yeah. If you, if you, if you want to stay at all costs. Yeah. And if it's, if, if you value what other people think of you, which sadly most of us do more than we should, then, um, you know, of course you're going to lie to yourself and you're going to lie to others about what's happening. And there's a sense of shame too. I know things were happening in my um, household that I found out about, um, that I still don't talk about publicly, um, because it's not really my story, but also because it's just, really shameful and I that I stayed as long as I did with that going on so you know there's a sense of like oh god I don't I can barely tolerate this myself I sure don't want to tell anybody else about it yeah no I understand that and it's like I have a lot of cops we have a great danger meter right Mm -hmm. and a bullshit filter and and you know and you see some officers that are just amazing professionals they're amazing leaders they're amazing they're eloquent. They mm-hmm. they control a scene. They control a room when they're speaking. But then you find out about them being going through some really horrific treatment at home, and you're like, "Well, hell, how the hell? How did that happen to them?" Mm-hmm. Well, I would do the line down the middle of the page because yeah. what's happening at home is that there's some compensation that's allowing the other person to treat them that way. And generally, I find that people who allow themselves to be mistreated. Um, well, let's talk about the sense of self first. Let me, let me back up. So if you think about, I'm not a big fan of the concept of self-esteem because I think that's pretty fuzzy and I think we'd all have to lie to ourselves a lot to esteem ourselves, (laughs) but I do, uh, embrace the concept of accurate self-image. So self-image, like the accurate self-image might involve, you know, I'm late all the time. I was late today. Um, I wear a size nine shoe. I'm tall, I'm creative and I'm not linear, you know, and I can be disorganized if I don't have anybody managing myself, managing me. Those are all things that are just true. And I can have shame about them or I can just, you know, work on them and do the best I can. Um, So an accurate self-image really just involves uh, an inventory of self and and a willingness to put things in buckets. So this might be in the I'm working on it bucket. This might be in the, you know, I love this about myself bucket. And this might be in the fuck it bucket. Like, I just can't, this is nothing's ever going to happen here. So we'll just screw it. Um, and that's me and my lateness. I've been working on it for 59 years and I've gotten anywhere. So <laughs> we're, we're just going to do the best we can with that. But um, so and then divide the, the sense of self into three parts. So there's self-worth, self-confidence and self-respect. Self-worth is your inherent value as a human being. Right. So, Megan, you have how many kids? Four. Four kids. And if I offered you cash, which one would you sell? <laughs> uh, can we take it on a day by day basis? <laughs> It's kind of a stupid question, though, right? Because right. Because you would never sell your children. And Usually. 
because you inherently love them no yeah, matter what the day exactly. has brought. So they're priceless, right? right? And so what did they have to do in order to earn that value in your mind? Show up. Right. And they exist. Yeah. They're there. And I don't yeah. know if any of your children has a disability, but if anybody did, would they? Would you love that child any less? No, I think you're almost more protective right. of them. So worth is what it is. You You can't earn it. You can't lose it. You can't pollute it. You can't do anything about it. And it's easy to see when we talk about kids, which is why I always ask people that question, but it's hard for us to recognize that we ourselves have inherent value that we can't do anything to change. It's just there. So that has to be recognized. And the second thing is self-confidence, which does have to be earned. So in your rookie year, I'm thinking you're not super confident, right? Now, if you're 20 years down the road, you've got a lot more confidence in what you're doing. So confidence does have to be earned. We, we take risks, we fail, we learn, we be, we're bad out loud, we learn from that. So people often confuse worth with confidence, right? And we often think that confident person must have a lot of self-worth, but it's, they're not the same thing. And then the third one is self-respect, which is how you allow yourself to be treated. And that has to be cultivated over time. So there's when you send your kids to preschool for the first time, there's supposed to be the speech, you know, if anybody touches you here, you let me know. So there are supposed to be early clues that there's rules in the universe and there's shit you don't have to put up with and I don't care who's doing it. So if somebody doesn't get that message or if they don't ingest that message, then they'll allow themselves to be mistreated instead of functioning with self-respect. So if you have fragile self-worth and fragile self-respect, you're probably going to be mistreated, even if you have a ton of self-confidence out there in the world. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, when you see people that keep, you know, we... The, the word recidivism is big with mm-hmm. our, our profession because we see so much of the same criminal committing the same mm-hmm. type of crime. But also when it comes to people going to similar back to similar type dating, similar type of people, mm-hmm. it, why do you why do you think that is? It's just they, they never they never fix their half of the page. They never fix why? their half of the page or they don't, they probably haven't even done the inventory of what their half of the page is. And most of us don't. I mean, if you think about it, we go through life thinking about what happens to us and not how we participate with what happens to us. Those are two different things. And there's, um, I don't know if you know about Bonton Farms, this nonprofit in South Dallas. Yes. Um, happens to have been founded by a guy that I went to high school with. So I have a lot of uh, affection for that nonprofit anyway. But what they've done down there, just by injecting the concept of worth and you know value and, and you know natural consequences, um, has really changed people's lives forever. Um, and they don't have a, the recidivism rate is non-existent, I think. Um, and I, I was talking to Darren Babcock one time, the the um, founder, and he told me a story that I thought was really noteworthy. He said a woman from the neighborhood, an older woman from the neighborhood, came up and wanted some tomatoes. And he said, "Well, you got to work for them." And she said, "Well, look at me, I'm 80. I can't work for. Th- I can't do any work." And he said, "Well, what can you do?" And she said, "Well, I'm I'm a praying woman." And he said, "Okay, can you come and pray over the harvest on Fridays?" And she said, sure. And he goes, okay, then you can have some tomatoes. So the, the requirement is that you earn what you get, and he just bakes it into the way the whole nonprofit is run. So if you think about like the way the universe works is you have to do X to get Y, and you have to behave this way to get that, right? And if we bake that into our home environment, and there are just natural consequences for things, and we just sort of recreate the universe, the universe is always a better teacher than anything that we can create. So... The idea that um, self-responsibility is required and that self-examination is required is, you know, it's kind of how the universe works. It's just that we don't function that way, and that's why things go badly. Wow. 
That's deep. <laughs> no, I love it. No, that's it's incredible. Uh, I knew she was going to be a hit. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, she's amazing. Um, I want to get into lifeology, and, okay. and I want you to break down the pillars of lifeology and how, like, I want you to tell sort of how it got going. Okay. So I started Lifeology as LifeWorks um, right about two months before I ended up getting divorced and got that fantastic financial settlement. So I had, uh, it was me and five interns and some rent to pay and a broken copier and two pleather chairs. Um, And my idea was I wanted to create a training facility because there are some real flaws in the way we were trained in my field. And I wanted it to be um, a really beautiful client experience. I've been a kidney patient my whole life. And so I've sat in a lot of bad waiting rooms with sticky magazines and you know, really cold rooms where nobody gives you a blanket when, you know, you're the only one with no clothes on, (laughs) things like that. So for me, the client experience was really important. So you walk into our our offices and they're really gorgeous and there's snacks and there's music and everything. Um, And then the other thing that's really important about what we do is we collaborate. So we have just like anybody on a team here, everybody has a specialty. So you're not competing with people on your team. You're bringing something unique to the table, right? So a SWAT team, I would assume has you know, what, what, what are the roles on a SWAT team? A sniper. They have a rappel uh, master. They have a, a master trainer. and Yeah. Right. And so the, those are thin slice specialties. They mm-hmm. don't all, you know, ma- they don't all specialize in all those things. No. So we function the same way so that if I do last ditch marriage counseling, somebody else does, or young couples, or somebody else will deal with infidelity or something else. So that way, um, if I have a case that um, involves addiction, I got, I've got an addiction person down the hall. And I know them, I know how good they are, and I can talk to them about my case, and we're going to help this family together. So we thin slice the specialty so that we don't compete, and we work beautifully in a team, and then we shut the whole place down for two hours a week, and we spend time together as a team, and we talk about cases. So every person who walks in the room or walks into our office, and it's you know four or 500 people a week now in Dallas and Fort Worth, um, gets the full attention of the team, hypothetically. So... It's a beautiful environment to work in. Um, and so in 2015, I had four locations and there was way more than I could handle. So I decided to franchise it. Um, and the franchise model, you know, you think McDonald's, but really what it is is you can hand somebody the package of what you've created so that they can create it where they are. And then they have all the support of our team. So we have 20 locations around the country now. Um, we're coast to coast, really. And um, it's growing rapidly and, you know, it's, it's really important to me because um, I believe that we do it the right way. And um, I believe that we, we give people the care that they deserve. And I, I think a lot of well-meaning people try to give people the care that they deserve. But this is like the Mayo Clinic versus your local, you know, doctor. So for us, it's um, the way we do things is really, really, it's really important. Do you, uh, since you're the founder of it, do you kind of monitor the, you, you want to make sure you're, franchises across the coast to coast they're being operated under your original vision yeah and they are and uh, we have a a training model that um, everybody in the whole system participates in so I can ensure that the toothpick comes out real clean on any clinician in the whole system because everybody's been through the same training model and we're picky about who our owners are and we're picky about who our clinical directors are and it's really harder to get on our team than it is to get into Harvard so we make sure that we really we're, we're lucky enough to have the cream of the crop pretty much everywhere, and then we take really really good care of them and train them beautifully. That's great. Yeah, it's a great system, and we're really happy about it. So wefixbrains dot com. Okay, <laughs> wefixbrains dot com. Yeah, listener. <laughs> um, I want to get into your psychotherapeutic yoga mm. and the importance of that. We we the wellness unit we just recently. 
uh, had a, 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 a yoga group come in and mm-hmm. we had great reviews from it. Yeah. And, you know, you think about yoga as being super hippy dippy and you don't think about a bunch of cops doing yoga. But um, and Lisa, it's in our uh, yoga teacher training, which is based in neuroscience. Um, so I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, I joined a different gym and I'd been a Pilates person before that. And my only fitness goal my whole life has just been to keep my ass from sliding down my thighs. You know, it's that's that's what I care about. I don't really care about heart attacks and stuff, whatever. I just I just want it's all vanity. Right. So I started doing yoga because there were no Pilates classes. And, you know, not only did my ass stay firmly in place, but (laughs) I stopped uh, like uh, I had less anxiety. I stopped getting sick as often. You know, my kidney problems kind of went away to the most to some degree. My allergies got better um, and I started sleeping and all kinds of things. And I just was like a calmer human. And so I had a case. where uh, I won't go into all the details, but there was just this part of this girl's brain that I just couldn't get to. And she was having these horrible nightmares that were based in trauma. And um, so I asked my yoga teacher if he could just come and see this girl. And so we moved the coffee table out out of the way in my office and he saw her three or four or five times and she got better real fast. And so that was, so of course I built a yoga studio and hired some yogis. So we started kind of injecting this yoga into our practice, but we really didn't know like why it works. And so eventually we mined the science and now we have this 200 uh, RYT, which is how you get trained to be a yoga teacher or how you get trained to do for us psychotherapeutic yoga. And it's really just a, a, um, a distillation of the brain body connection. So again, your brain is an organ and it's connected to your body and the uh, vagus nerve that goes from your brain is connected to every organ in your body. And so you can control your vagus nerve by using your body. And if you do that, then you don't have to train your brain to stay calm. So the body can actually manage the brain and the nervous system if you teach it how. So there are different protocols for different things. So, for example, if you are a person who is, um, struggles with anxiety, you're going to want to do a lot of forward bending, not a lot of open bending. You don't want to do hot yoga because that will make you more anxious. So there are ways to ramp up your nervous system or ramp it down, you know, calm it down, all using um, just the simple, you know, traditional um, practice of yoga. But our practice with psychotherapeutic yoga is more prescriptive. So... Any yoga class will benefit you, but we know what the effect of your nervous on your nervous system will be if you do certain things, and that's how our program is designed. And we just opened up a yoga studio in um, uh, in Turtle Creek, in, right by our office. It's called Yogazama, yogazamastudio.com. We have a discount for first responders. so um, We like that. Yeah, and it's really gorgeous, and I, I feel like all uh, first responders should have should be practicing yoga. And practicing meditation. I am trying to change that um, belief that yoga is, you know, hippy dippy, mm-hmm. and because uh, I I started doing it a few months ago, and it's completely changed my life. Yeah, um, I sleep better. I have less anxiety, mm-hmm. um, and if if everybody could just do just a couple of minutes, just a breath just work. Just a little bit, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. life-changing. So here's a little test for everybody that's listening. So go ahead, and we can do this in the room too. Just remove your tongue from the roof of your mouth. And did you notice your nervous system just calm down a little bit? That's one small thing that your body is telling you you're tense, so your brain goes, oh, we must be tense. If you fix that with your body, then your brain calms down. Um, and here's another selling point for all of those first responders out there. Um, 
snipers have known this for generations, right? What, what do snipers know how to do? Breathe. Breathe. And they know how to breathe and lower their own blood pressure in real time so that they can do their job. So this is just an extension of that same set of skills. And, you know, you don't have to wear tights. <laughs> but your ass will stay. I, I want to wear them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you'd look great in the tights, but yeah, that's another conversation. That's another <laughs> okay. show. <laughs> yeah, that's part two with Melody Wells. We'll get into that. So, where are you? Do you plan on expanding your yoga studio? I mean, I know you just got one going. I'm not trying to the studio. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, this is just sort of a. This is the first step to many studios, I believe. And one thing that we really care about in the in the um, psychotherapeutic yoga school and Lisa is knows this as well because she's in the, pro- in the program, but we're trying to reach um, traumatized communities um, because it's the cheapest mental health care in the world. All you need is your own breath and a place to sit. So we have first responders in our program and we also have uh, right now in our program, uh, several uh, people from Africa who are zooming in from Africa um, to our um psychologist at the University of Johannesburg and we're building a program with them a mental health program for their students um, through the psychotherapeutic yoga we also have a guy who's living in a refugee camp in Kenya so he's living in a traumatized community and if we can educate him so that he can take yoga into his community then we're reaching so many more people than we can reach just from Dallas Texas so the idea is you know to sort of spread the gospel and help people, you know, um, access this mental health care. But also, ideally, once people go through the program, they would be able to, we can help them start a studio as well. Well, especially when you, it, you like you said, it, it is a very simplistic, mm-hmm. cheap approach to yeah. overall health. I, you know, hell, I'm beat, my body's beat up because of, of you know, years of working in the streets and, mm-hmm. and many surgeries and working out hard and, and mm-hmm. I'm just the flexibility alone. Yeah. Uh, it's very beneficial, but it, yoga is hard. Damn, it's hard. It's really hard. And it, and it doesn't have to be hard. You know, it can start easy. And the thing about yoga that I love, I'm not an athletic person, but you can, um, there's always an adaptation. So if you can't touch your toes, we've got an, we've got a brick for you that will bring the, we can raise the floor and eventually you will be able to touch your toes. But if you can't touch your toes, you probably need the yoga right? If you're really stiff. So if people say, I'm not going to do the yoga because I can't touch my, t- my toes, but it's the opposite, isn't it, Lisa? <laughs> I, could t- I could touch the toes. Yeah, okay, I could do good. that. Yeah. Yeah. Not easy, but I could do it. So what's what's next for you? What, I mean, you, you just opened up that, but you, you know, you seem like you're, you're, you're an expander. You're going to expand and keep going. And I'm glad you are because <laughs> what you're doing is, is truly saving lives and saving marriages and saving individuals and, and improving quality of life. It, yeah, and that's what I care about, and that's that's what I figured out in that practice room by myself is that I, I this can't this, this can't be how I move through the world. So what's happening now is, um, you know, like I said, the yoga studio just opened, um, and it's very exciting, and we have introductory rates for everybody, and like I said, there's a first responder discount. Um, and I'm also working with a group very close, and we've worked with them for years called Readiness Group. Do you know Readiness Group? No, talk about them. So Readiness Group is a, a group of uh, three women, uh, all of whom are uh, psychologists or they all have their PhDs, based in Fort Worth, and um, they train first responders. They do uh, peer uh, training, and they train in trauma, the science of trauma, and then we work with the, we do the counseling piece. So there's three legs of the stool. There's the peer um, support training, and then there's the trauma training 
for everybody in the department, and then we do the, the mental health work. And what we know is if readiness group goes in and they do that training, then 15% of the people in the department will seek counseling instead of four. So it, people get the help that they need if they understand the science of trauma and if there are trained peers who can help them out. So um, we're working with, I think it's, I don't know, 15 or 20 cities in the area. We've been working with 10 for years, Rowlett, and um, I can't think of them all. Um, Cedar Hill has always been a big one. Midlothian is another one. And we've been working with Dallas Fire and Rescue for years as well, a local 58. So um, doing a lot of first responder work is really important to us. Um, and our trauma people are really well trained but working with readiness group we know we can go in and give like a soup to nuts here we can help your department actually be healthy instead of just need the support right right yeah well a lot of it the education piece is huge and and, and now that we we're starting up the i'm going to get your thoughts on our wellness unit and i don't know how much you know about it Mm -hmm. but you know last october we started up this unit officially and it had been in the works for uh quite some time but education and, and you know just teaching anything when you go mm-hmm. teach a class there may be you know people are playing on their phone or dozing off or daydreamers staring out the window or whatever just or mm-hmm. they don't they're not buying in right but if you can get a 10 percent, 5 percent improvement that's better than zero percent than whenever right. you presented this so we are doing constant education we're trying to we you know basically take a proactive approach to our officers and our department of reaching out before it becomes a problem. We're trying. Right. And also the constant education of planting seeds and so, I would call it softening a conversation mm-hmm. for, for mental health in the first responder community. Yeah. And I would even, I would maybe even change the language a little bit. I think not just mental health, but brain health yes. and nervous system health. I think once people understand that this is science and it's not about you having a weakness or anything like that, like your, your body and your brain respond to trauma in a particular way. This is the way it's going to go. And if we want to undo it, let's do this. So I think you're right. The, the, the education piece is really important because people don't, people uh, don't make the distinction between your mind and your brain. And they're actually two different things, right? So um, I think it's wonderful what's happening, that we have a wellness unit. And I, you know, I wouldn't say that we don't want to change the culture. We want to inject it into the culture so that it becomes part of the culture, so that people think we all know we need to be fit and we all know uh, that we need to do certain things to maintain ourselves, but to also add the idea that we need to maintain our nervous system so that we don't overreact in really high stress situations, so that we don't that, that there aren't police shootings that shouldn't happen, that there aren't suicides. The suicide rate for first responders, as you know, um, outpaces the um, on-duty deaths. That's outrageous. So the idea of and suicide is, you know, it's an act of hopelessness. And it's an isolated act of hopelessness. It's what people do when they feel no hope and they feel alone. So to be able to talk out loud about, you know, brain health being mental health and that we all can, um, you know, access care for ourselves. And and that's a that's a good thing, just like you would go to the dentist. Um, Normalizing that, I think, is just so it's so important. It will save so many lives and, and change so many lives. I think also what sets us apart is the um, and you mentioned this word a lot, connecting. Mm-hmm. We are being proactive. My unit is being proactive and reaching out to our officers before anything happens and yeah. building that connection and being very intentional about it. Yeah. And I'm so glad. And, you know, one thing that we've noticed um, in years of working with first responders is that on the fire truck, they get to go home together and process what just happened. And, you know, cops don't have that luxury. Right. You don't 
go you don't go back to the you know uh, station and discuss what just happened as a group we go to the next call you go to the next call right and so there's just a different kind of stress and then you know when firemen show up they're the heroes when you guys show up that's not how people see you right some of us have sworn off watching the news yeah you know exactly yeah (laughs) so it's you know it's a really really tough gig and, and the stress and the trauma are built in so to to we also need to bake in the help for those things. Well, one thing we uh, we are really proud of, as uh, Chief Garcia uh, came up with, is our alcohol leave policy. Mm. So we have we, you know, we just in seven months of policy or procedure, we now have we're allowing thirty days of administrative leave that doesn't count the weekends for an officer to check himself or uh. himself into a inpatient facility for thirty days to yeah. to get the help now it needs to be done prior to having an alcohol related incident don't get, right. while you're getting pulled mm-hmm. over for dwi so well, right. i need to call a wellness unit so it doesn't work that way but when this was first pitched i've i've said this before and i, I stand by it is that i really thought damn because i've been in this profession for over mm-hmm. 26 years and as megan pointed out that i'm old so <laughs> you know i was thinking we have one person in a calendar year i think we can look at it as a success that's a win we've had eight go through wow. and complete it in seven months of policy and we've had four other people kick the tires on it mm-hmm. show interest i'm i was shocked honestly and, and you look at the tenure of people that have done it mm-hmm. and the the level of like we've had somebody as a is a, a supervisor in swat that's been in swat for a very long time mm-hmm. and very respected that kind of came out of nowhere nobody knew that he had a problem of course not yeah i mean it's a whole it's his whole job to hide it right yeah so, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm so glad you guys are doing that because addiction is also a science. And there's a terrific book called Healing the Addicted Brain by Hal Urschel. I think it's Harold Urschel. I know him as Hal. Um, and it really goes through the science of addiction. And, again, if you understand that there's a dopamine cycle involved and there's a, there's a nervous system process that's happening, and it's not just that you don't have any self-control and that you enjoy bourbon or whatever it is, that, you know, this is a process that we can interrupt and we can do it scientifically. And we can do it with support. Yeah, you, you got to have support. Mm-hmm. And, and well, you also need to become self-aware that or get to the realization that you have to address this. Right. And ideally, you do it before it's too late. You know, uh, pain only change occurs when pain overcomes fear. And um, sadly, people wait until they're in excruciating amounts of pain before they're willing to overcome their feel, fear of dealing with whatever the problem is. So... If we learn to listen to our pain and not just our fear, we're much more likely to be able to move forward in a healthy way. Melanie, we've covered a lot of topics, and I feel like we could go a lot longer um, and dive even deeper. But if you had to summarize a couple of key points that you feel like we could take away, what would those be? Well, I think um, that idea that change occurs when pain overcomes fear is really important. And I also think it's really important not to waste pain. Uh, It's a very, very expensive emotion. So if you don't let it move you toward healing, you're wasting what you're going through. And I think um, since first responders are trained to ignore their pain. You're so right. (laughs) And also their fear, listening to either one of those things is going to be really hard for people. And so um, my, I think a, a key takeaway would be if, you are medicating pain, or if you are doing things to not feel, it's probably an indication that you are in a lot of pain and you should start paying attention to it. 
and whatever fear you have that's keeping you from doing that, let's look at that and try to overcome the fear so that we can use the pain well. That's what leads to healing. That's great. Is that helpful? That's very good. Uh, we touched on social media a little bit earlier. Uh, it's it's really hard raising kids right now mm-hmm. uh, with everything that they're seeing in social media. What are some, some tips, some skills that uh, we can teach our kids, um, girls, on um, how to build resiliency and self and have that self-worth, self-respect? Well, you know, it's funny because I was looking at um, a, a group picture from elementary school the other day. And when I was in elementary school and even high school, nobody colored their hair and everybody just looks sort of, we all just look sort of like the island of misfit toys, you know, like there's bad genes involved and ha- the hairstyles are horrible. And that's just not a thing anymore. Like the way people, the, the, the appearance is so, um, such a big deal starting very, very young. And there's a, a particular tipping point for girls where up until you are about probably 10 or 12 years old, you're known for your personality and what you can do and what you're good at. And then you start to be known for who likes you and how pretty you are, and how people see you, like, who are you dating, who wants to go out with you, who's asking you to go steady, or whatever they say now, and you're, so you're to start to be defined by who you're with, instead of who you are, and I think the best gift that we can give our girls is to define yourself by who you are, like, what, what are you worth, what's your worth, understand that, um, what are you confident at, what can, what can we do to help you get confident, you know, what risk do you need to take, and parents, please let your children fail. Let them take risks and let them fail. And that's how we learn. I mean, ask yourselves what you've learned the most from your successes or your failures. Yeah, there's value in failure. In, in, yeah. Infinite value, yeah. So um, do we need to let our kids fail and learn some things? And then that self-respect thing, it's, it's, it's really important for, especially for girls to learn to say no early on. And I'll give you a good story from my own background. So my dad, you know, I told you my parents were hippies. But my dad was quite a drinker and a great drinker. He was really good at it. And he was that life of the party. And so I could make a cocktail when I was 10 or eight or whatever. And one day, I think I was about 10. And he said, Melanie, um, you know, give me a a gin and tonic, three fingers. Because that's how I measured the gin. And I said, no, I'm not gonna. And he said, well, why not? And I said, because I don't want to make your drinks anymore. And I don't want you. I don't want to watch my dad get drunk. And he said, okay. And he got up and made it himself. So that was a, you know, he still drank, but he gave me an early message that I could say no about something I was uncomfortable with, and he would respect the no. And so I think that's a really important message to give our our girls particularly, that you can say no to things, and people can be disappointed. And that's fine. We'll all live right through that. So your goal is not to keep people happy or to make sure that you're liked. Your goal is to be able to make sure that you're safe. We can create our own safety. We don't have to wait for other people to provide it for us. Once again, LTL, thank you for <laughs> suggesting her. I have to, may have to get her back on for a part two. Um, I'm always up for it. Yeah. I, I can't thank you enough for coming in here. I know you must be extremely busy and, and uh, with your schedule and all the, the many things you have your hands in <laughs> across from coast to coast to give us a better quality of life. Thank you so much for doing what you do and for being here for us and uh, and actually for coming in, taking your time to come to our office here in the wellness unit and sit down with us for this conversation. I think you're going to touch a lot of listeners and what I imagine this episode would be, it went way beyond that. 
and having Lieutenant here and having uh, Megan here and uh, Detective Moncada down there uh, sitting in and, and taking pictures of us and feeding us questions. <laughs> it, it went way beyond and it hit it out of the park and I can't thank you enough for sitting here with us. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me and I, I just want to leave a parting word for especially for first responders. Um, one, you're not alone literally ever. You have a huge tribe of people that are that care about you. Um, your co-workers and also all of us who are out there in the trenches working on your behalf. Um, and, you know, struggle and pain and fear and shame and those are all part of the human condition. So let's all just admit that we're human and, you know, you don't even have to think about it as seeking help. Just seek support. Everybody's here to support you. Um, one thing first responders are great at is being a team. So reach out to your team, understand that you've got a tribe and that we're all we're all here for you. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey Mrs. Hey Mr. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder together we'll run up from the bottom yeah we'll rise above hey brother hey sister I'll never give up on you hey missus hey I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you I'll never give up on you.